Okay, so we have we have people jumping on. Um, so this is going to be a a very informative, action-packed hour of power. Um, because Dr. Chris Phelps, if you guys know anything about Chris, he is a master of persuasion, case presentation, all of the things that we are trying to hone our skills so that we can get um, get into doing higher production procedures and not just MODs all day long, right, Chris? That's right. Got, got to get <laughs> out of that. You got to get out of that, especially with PPO fees. Um, hold on. Sorry. I just want to make sure that we're on. Okay. We are on. Um, Chris, will you give some of your background? Yeah. You know, it's uh, my background's kind of interesting. You know, I made the decision to be a dentist in seventh grade, uh, which was kind of unique. As a friend uh, signed uh, or took me to a future dentist of America club meeting. Uh, something I had never heard of at that point and have not seen since then. Yet he, his mom found out about it and signed him up and he didn't want to go alone. So he asked me to come along with him. And then at that event at this dentist office in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I'm from, I'm the one that gets, gets hooked on dentistry and decide right then. I was like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do when I grow up. So fairly fortunate and blessed to be, have that kind of focus early on, on determination on what I wanted to do with my life and uh, struggled my way through dental school like everybody else. Uh, it was a lot of information, but I was really had a good vision on what I wanted when I got out. And that was at first to be a multi-practice owner. And so uh, I got really lucky. My wife's dentist here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live today. I graduated in 2003 and I found that her dentist was a fee-for-service practice. And he was the only fee-for-service practice in a sea of PPO dentists, uh, which was very unique and I was very fortunate to have my start under that environment. And I was that, that guy, Dr. Thomas Grimes, he was really good about uh, really kind of letting me spend his money in the early days on my marketing ideas to get myself opportunities as an associate and then as a partner uh, within six months. And, and we grew and we, we doubled that practice and uh, did our first cold scratch office as our second satellite office. Uh, got that to two million within two years, and then bought a third office and transitioned it, and then started another cold start from scratch. So, within seven years, finding myself with four offices, trying to do clinical dentistry amongst other things, and making all the business decisions and doing the marketing and that kind of stuff. And as you can imagine, you know, I can juggle a lot of balls, as most people probably know. Uh, even if the best multitaskers, though, you know, we all our cup runneth full at some point, right? And so I'd kind of gotten to that point where I needed to offload some things. I needed to, what I call buy back my time and my freedom. And so I decided to sell my two best offices and I took over the two worst ones because uh, I felt like if I could had the time to be more proactive in my thinking instead of reactive as I was always just waiting for a fire to come and then trying to solve it, if I could get ahead of the thing then I felt like I could do more of the two offices than I did with the four. So I spent a lot of time working on that and, and, but that entrepreneurial bug has always been in me and that itch, if you will. So I had to scratch it. So I, I kept developing other companies, you know, started a call tracking company. And from that uh, was birthed uh, one of my best companies, uh, Golden Goose Scheduling, which a lot of people know about our call center. Um, and it's kind of led me to this point today is when now I tell people, I used to say I went, I'm, I'm a dentist, but now I say I'm an entrepreneur who happens to be a pretty good dentist. <laughs> That is awesome. I want, can you, um, so we're, we're still letting people kind of jump on. Um, I, I think a lot of us, a lot of us don't really understand what we are doing wrong when we talk to patients. What yes. is the biggest thing that you have seen, especially from newer docs, when they are treatment planning, when they're presenting to their patients? Like what, what have you noticed and, and where, where is the roadblock? Are we educating too much? Are we talking too much and not listening? You know, that's a great question. And I'm going to answer it by telling you a story, if that's okay. Um, yeah. You know, back in the eighties when court TV kind of first came out on the scene, 
And it was really the first time the nation could all watch the same court case live, kind of like we were watching the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard case right now, okay, mm-hmm. and have been for the last few months. But it was the first time you could actually do that. And so it was kind of unique, and it was a, a legal battle between two big oil companies, uh, Texaco, as we'll call it, and Pennzoil, just for example, with Pennzoil being the underdog. And Pennzoil was kind of suing Texaco because they felt like Texaco had come on their land, drilled, found oil, and was making money off of it. So therefore, that was their oil and their money, right? And they felt like Texaco owed them. And uh, Texaco, of course, felt the opposite. They felt like it was their land and they didn't owe them anything. And so this whole big case is going on and is nationally televised. So all the legal scholars throughout the country, the talking heads, if you will, uh, could be interviewed and all have the same conversation, right? We're all talking about the same subject matter now and give their expert opinions. And what the uh, these legal authorities kind of came up with was two decisions. They said, well, number one, you know, even though the, the, the jury's in deliberation, they have to come up with a decision on who's right and who's wrong here. Uh, it's going to take at least six months for the jury to decide, okay? Uh, because it took six months just to get through all of the mountain of evidence one time, okay? So a very long time uh, trying to get through this stuff. So we're not going to hear a decision from them soon because if they got to study the facts, there's just too much. The other thing the legal scholars agreed on, based on the evidence that was presented and their expertise, they thought Texaco was going to win. And they said, yeah, based on what we think, Texaco is the winner. So they felt like it was going to be six months before they heard anything and Texaco was going to win. Well, what happened? Well, it didn't take six months. The jury came back in two hours and awarded the underdog, Pennzoil, the victor, and gave them a settlement of $2.53 billion as a result. To this day, the largest uh, legal settlement in, in, in civil history, okay? So people were shocked, of course, and interviewed the foreperson of the jury afterwards, and they're like, hey, man, what was going on? What did you use to make your decision? And the foreperson said, well, for us as 12 jury members, it came down to three things. Number one, that uh, the Texaco team, yeah, their lawyers, they had scornful manners. And they're like, hmm, okay. So they were kind of rude, a little rough around the edges. What else? And he said, well, that top Texaco VP, yeah, that guy was had a pompous attitude. Huh, okay. And you said it was a third thing, right? Because we're kind of hoping there's some logic here, some fact. And they said, well, you know, Texaco's lead witness, their authority that they built their whole case around, uh, yeah, that guy never looked us in the eye when he testified. And what was amazing was that was the three things they used to decide, okay? And awarded $10.53 billion as a result. But what does that boil down to, Right. So you're asking these 12 people who have no real expertise in land rights, drilling rights, oil, all that kind of stuff, but we're asking them to make a decision as if they're experts, right? If they really have true training and expertise in this matter, and they can't do it, but they have to use something to make their decision. And in this case, what they did was fall back on two of Dr. Robert Cialdini's six principles of persuasion, okay? The liking principle and the authority principle, which means which side do we like better and which side do we trust more? Okay, because that's what they do understand. We like and who we trust. And that's what they use to decide. And what I love about that example is that's exactly what our patients are feeling when they're in our chair. Right. When we present all this information to them, even though it's true and factual, we're asking them to make a decision as if they're true experts like we are, if they really understand it like we do. And the fact of the matter is they don't. (laughs) Not at all. So we're actually wasting our efforts the more we go into it. Instead, they're using something else, these other six principles, to make their decision. So I learned and was fortunate to hear Dr. Cialdini speak and train under him to realize, you know, I'm making my strategies on case presentation around the wrong things, but I need to be making around these other things instead. And once I decided to do that and I saw the results, everything changed. It was a big benefit. Are you going to walk us through those six principles today, Chris? Yeah. So, you know, the first one is as old as time. It's called reciprocity. And this idea that when somebody's given you a gift of value, there's this obligation that's created inside of you that you feel like you need to give back, right? If somebody does you a favor, you feel like you got to give them a favor, right? They give you a gift on your birthday. You need to give them a gift back on their birthday, that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's key in building relationships with people, right? It's why Uh, We work as groups instead of uh, we're still individuals fighting for resources like uh, cavemen, if you will. Uh, The second principle is called liking, and it kind of goes back to that jury example, right? We'd like to do business with people we like. So if it's a friend asking or somebody that's on our team, 
somebody we want to cooperate with, well, then it's hard to say no, okay? But if we don't like that person, then it's very easy to say no to them as well. Uh, so we've got liking, we've got reciprocity. We've got uh, one of the most popular ones right now is social proof. It used to be called consensus. Well, social proof is just the evidence of the masses, right? So when you see that the majority of people around you are doing something, saying something, what have you, there's a lot of influence pressure for you to do the same and fall in line and do what they're doing. Kind of like, you know, the old adage, you know, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump too? Well, the answer based on this principle is more than likely you might. <laughs> there's a good chance that you would. Uh, because when we see others or the crowd moving a certain way and we're standing outside of the crowd, that's the pull. Like usually in the, like uh, in nature, that's a dangerous situation, right? If you're swimming outside of the, the school of fish and you're swimming by yourself, that's not a good place to be because you're probably going to get eaten. So nature has kind of learned we, we're, there's safety in numbers, if you will. So we've got social proof. We've got authority, which we mentioned before, which means we look to credible expert uh, people, people we can trust uh, to tell us what we should do. Why? Because truthfully, we don't have time to be an expert in everything. So yeah, if a plumber comes to my house tomorrow and tells me I need to buy a new toilet, well, you know, I don't know anything about plumbing, so I guess I'm buying a new toilet, okay? Uh, so we really need, it's not that we could be an expert in everything, we just don't have the time. So we need these people to be our shortcuts. We look to the principles like consistency, which is, was, in my opinion, one of the most powerful and one of the most, the biggest root cause problems behind the majority of the behaviors, issues I saw in my own practices, my, uh, with my patients, my team, and my associate doctors. But consistency is basically the commitment principle, which basically means that when people make a commitment, a, a real commitment about something, they take a stand on an issue, what have you, there's a lot of external and internal pressure on them to stay consistent and follow through and do what they said they were going to do. And you kind of know that's true when you think of the opposite of that word consistent. Like, what do we call people as a society who are inconsistent, who don't do what they say they're going to do on the norm, right? We have a lot of bad words for those people, <laughs> uh, flip-floppers, wishy-washy, or, you know, liars, okay? So that's kind of the external pressure. We don't want others to view our actions, beliefs as being uh, lying, right? As not doing what we say we're going to do. And the internal pressure is we don't want to look at ourselves in that way either. So if you get people to make a commitment, there's a lot of influence force there that they're going to fall through and do the commitment that they made. Okay. And then of course, our last principle is the principle of scarcity, right? And scarcity is all about uh, loss, but it's really about resources. If, you know, if resources are truly dwindling or running out, it's a powerful motivator to get you off your butt and go do something about it. So the example I always give is, you know, let's say the room you're sitting in right now that the oxygen was running out. It was about to disappear. Okay. It's getting ready to be gone. No more air. So how many of you would prefer to know before that happens rather than when it happens? And I would hope everybody would prefer to know that before it actually runs out, because that's going to motivate you to go get some new oxygen, right? Fine. Let's get out of here and go get some air somewhere else. And so we lean on these six principles to decide. But going back to your question, you know, where did Venice mostly drop the ball? Well, it really factors into like the top five reasons why people say no to us. Okay. Now, these principles are the solution to these reasons, but we got to understand why people say no from a behavioral science standpoint. And it, the, a big one is this uncertainty. Okay. So if there's any kind of question or doubt in people's minds, they don't move. They stay put, right? You see in a world of COVID, when COVID first hit the scene, everybody hunkered down and didn't do anything, okay? Here we are in another uncertain time with inflation, and suddenly everybody's pocketbooks are drying up and they're not spending as much as they used to. They're not moving anymore. They're not making any decisions because in their mind, it's just safer to wait it out. Let's just see, if you will, than to act, okay? So if people have questions or doubt, if they're uncertain, they don't move. Well, many times from new doctors' point of view, I see the problem sometimes comes is they're the source of the uncertainty. They're breeding that question and doubt in the patient's mindset because they're not confident about what they're presenting. And if you're not coming across confident that you believe in what you say and the options you're presenting, the patient's going to feel that and pick up on it, and they're going to do nothing as a result. So it's kind of like, well, Mr. Jones, you could do this or you could do that. I don't know. What do you want to do? And the patient's going to look at you and go, well, geez, doc, you're the expert and you don't know? How am I supposed to choose? Okay. So, th so that's half of the problem right there. Sometimes we're the source of the uncertainty because we're not confident. But truthfully, the majority of the time, both for new doctors and seasoned doctors, where we drop the ball is we're giving people too many options 
and leaving too many options on the table. So meaning, you know, while we do need at least two choices, right, to, to make a commitment, this or that, if you will, the more choices we give people, studies show the less likely they are to pick any of them. They just freeze, right? Mm-hmm. It's called the paradox of choice. So if we leave them with, you know, let's say three things, like let's say you can do this partial, you can do this bridge, or you can do this implant. Okay, well, that's three things. Let me get the financial team to come in and go over that with you, and you can decide what you want to do. Well, right there, we've just made two big mistakes. Number one, we just told the patient the sole thing they need to use to make the decision. It's about the money. Now we're going to let the financial team come in and go over those options so you can figure out which one's right for you, okay? When it shouldn't be about the money. The second error we just made is we left too many options on the table because if we left three treatment options on the table and the financial team comes in and goes over three financial options for each of those three treatment options, now the patient has nine things they're trying to decide from. And guess what happens? They choose nothing instead. So I think that's really the big thing right there, those two areas, that key uncertainty is probably the biggest thing I see doctors uh, dropping the ball on. Okay, so now that we know what we're doing wrong, how do you remedy that? Because in dental school, we're taught to make treatment plan one, two, three, best, better, good, and of course nothing. Um, And then we're also, we unfortunately, a lot of us are startups who are, I mean, this is a startup group. So we are in network with so many insurances to get our doors open, to get butts in the door. Um, how, as much as we don't want money to be the, the, the barrier to treatment, I mean, in real world dentistry, patients, the first thing that they say is, what's my insurance? going to cover how do what what is the verbiage that we should be using for those questions yeah yeah, and good question so it all backs up to again those five reasons why people say no to us so let me cover that real quick because we're going to keep going back to them so one big reason why people say no to us is they're not in the right mindset so their their mindset isn't even here to really focus in and make a decision about what you're talking about in their mouth today And whether you realize it or not, when your patients come into your practice, they're all coming in with a mindset already established from something. And usually that mindset is focused on the wants in their life, the things they want to spend their money on, okay, besides their oral health care. And if you don't do anything to change that mindset, like in your example, somebody's coming in and says, I only want to do what my insurance covers. Well, that's a mindset, right? That's a commitment they've made. So if we don't do something to counter that first, the door to yes is already closed. It's already an uphill battle get around. So we got to realize that whatever mindset they're coming in with, we need to change that. Okay. And I'll talk about how we can do that. Once we change their mindset, then we got to build the relationship. So the lack of relationship is the second big reason why people say no to you. Like I said, I don't know you, I don't like you, then I'm not going to say yes to you or your treatment recommendations as a result. Okay. So I think there's a lot of ways we bungle the relationship aspect of this and don't take the time because we're too busy. Okay. So if we don't invest the time in the relationship, we don't tend to get the yeses that come out of that as a result. So we got mindset's a big issue. We got no relationship is a big issue. And of course, we've got that uncertainty that I talked about, okay? Leaving too many options on the table and the patient has no idea how to decide. The fourth big reason why people say no to us is there's a lack of motivation. I call this the I got time phenomenon, right? You know what? I'm gonna get to it at some point, but I don't have to get to it right now because it doesn't hurt. I got time. Well, while they may intend to come back to this dental issue, what happens is because so many other things in their life pop up, we go further and further down on the priority scale, never to be seen or heard from again. Until maybe we get them back in six months for another cleaning and we have another chance to bring it back to the top of mind notification form. Okay. So if we don't motivate action today, that's going to be a problem. People don't tend to say yes. And of course, the last one is what I call there's a lack of an anchor. Okay. So Whatever you tell somebody, whatever option you throw at them, whatever number you put in front of them, they're always going to compare that to something in their life, the things that they're spending their money on, the wants, if you will. And that's really one of the challenges. We're coming in talking about a dental need, but they want to spend their money on other things, the iPhone, the Beats, the the vacations, the, the whatever, okay? 
So if we don't back it up and we control that comparison, we're going to be in trouble. So what I always say is we got to anchor them to something else first, something of a higher value. So when I start my presentation, as I said, I make that person fill out a, a form so I know exactly who they are. So they're ask, I'm asking specific questions that get to the heart of what do they value? Where do they stand? What kind of patient do they want to be? So, and by asking these questions, which the most important one I ask is this, when it comes to oral health, do you prefer to be reactive? Someone who will let things go, right? Let the wheels fall off the bus, even though it's going to cost you more time and money and pain because you waited. Or are you someone who prefers to be proactive? Someone who wants to avoid things getting worse, costing you more time, money, and pain because you waited. This or that, choose. Okay. So automatically asking that question in a new patient form or even at the chair, if I'm just interviewing them, okay, automatically by answering, I've got them in a new mindset now. Whatever it is, proactive or reactive, I've got a plan. And for the majority of those folks, the majority say proactive. Now I got them in the right mindset. And now I can counter that mindset if it's an insurance mindset. So let's say we get down to the financial presentation and they're like, well, I only want to do what my insurance covers and it's not covering much of anything. So what am I going to do? Well, Mr. Jones, I'm confused. You told me you prefer to be proactive. You didn't want things to get worse and cost you more time and you pain by waiting. Well, I'm sorry, your insurance doesn't cover as much, but that's what it's going to take to be proactive. Or you could wait and it's going to cost you a lot more time and money down the road. Which would you prefer? Wait and add more pain issues or take care of it now and be done with it. No, you're probably right, Doc. I probably need to go ahead and take care of it. So you see what I mean? So we, we need something else to counter that mindset first, or we're already having an uphill battle. The door's already kind of shut in our face to start with, okay? And then when it comes back to presenting your options, again, we, we have to control the scenario. We got to control the game. The way I, I describe it is it's like we're bowling together, us and the patient. Now, we as the oral healthcare experts, we got to pick the lane we're going to bowl on. Because if I'm bowling on lane one and the patient's bowling on lane three, that's going to be a problem. We got to be in the same lane, okay? And as the expert, I know what the dental needs are, so I'm going to pick the number of pins, okay, that we're going to knock down. So I've got the goal set, so to speak. But at the same time, I have to give the patient some autonomy, some level of control of their situation and give them a choice. So influence and persuasion is all about giving the patient choices and guiding them down the path, okay? As we say, you can lead the horse to water, but we can't make it drink. Well, I can influence the horse to want to drink. And if it wants to drink, then it usually does. So in this case, in our bowling example, I'm going to let them pick the ball. What's the weight? Is it six pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds? How big are the holes? Small, medium, or large? You going to ball with left-handed or right-handed or granny style? You going to put a spin on it or roll it straight? Again, the more options I can present like that, the more choices that I can limit them to. Every time they choose, they're more and more and more committed to doing something. And this is this path of giving them choice and tying the pros and cons of our treatment back to their value statements that I ask them in that new patient form, okay? Those are the things that turn this dental need into a dental want. And again, when they want it, now it's not about the insurance anymore. Now it's not about the money for the majority of the people, okay? Going back to the choices, I, I and we're starting to get some questions also, Chris, but going back yeah. to the choices, how, how do you determine when you're offering too many choices versus you helping them to guide, which I, I guess I'm a little bit confused as to Definitely. the difference? Well, you know, yeah. it would help is later in the group, I'll share with you a worksheet that's got the structure of how this is laid out so you can kind of visualize it a little better. But the idea is you can ethically present as many choices as you feel the patient has, okay? or that you feel that you need to present, okay? So we're not talking about hiding choices because there's too many. We can, we'll go through every one of them that we ethically need to, okay? And should be presented to that person. But the challenge is, and where most people drop the ball is, they stop right there and leave all those choices on the table. So once I've presented everything and I've gone over the pros and cons of all the treatment options, now I'm gonna walk the patient back and I'm gonna ask a series of questions, what I call a, in a this or that format. So let me do it as an example. So let's say we got a single missing tooth, okay? You know that ethically for a single missing tooth, we got to present four things. We got to present not do nothing, okay? We got to present a partial. 
we got to present a bridge, and we got to present the implant, abutment, and crown, right? That's the four things we need to present. So the way I'm going to describe this, I'm going to anchor that person to something else first, and it's called the scarcity anchor. So I'm going to anchor them to the consequences of what's going to happen for doing nothing. Because for most people, there's a cost there, whether they realize it today or not. So I need to leverage that scarcity and anchor them to that first. So I'll do my medical history review. I'll go through the new patient form. I'll ask those value statements. Hey, Ms. Jones, you prefer to be proactive? Great. You prefer to be have your teeth in comfort so you don't like to be in pain? Fantastic. Uh, time is an issue for you, I see from this, this questionnaire. So if you had to take a lot of time off of work for a lot of treatments, that's going to be a problem. Okay, good to know. Well, let me show you this. So when I move into my presentation, first and foremost, you still have to justify there's a need. So we still got to show them the x-rays, the intro camera photo, because people won't just take our word for it, right? They got to see it, that there's an issue, okay, in some way, shape, or form. So pull out your scanner, whatever your, your camera, whatever you got, they got to see it kind of thing. And you say, so here's what I'm concerned about, what I see today with this missing tooth. Now, your first option, of course, is to do nothing. But here's what's going to happen. And you just kind of play this out in your mind. What's going to happen a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, okay, in your mind? And if that person's back in your chair down the road, 10 years from now, let's say, and they're looking to get back to where they were today, a tooth in their mouth that doesn't come out, what's that going to cost? In time, treatment, money, what they value, et cetera. So I'll say, so if you do nothing, guess what's going to happen? You know, the only reason you, you keep the bone in your jaws is because of the tooth roots. So when you lose the tooth roots, you lose the bone in that area. Studies show about 20% of the bone volume is gone in the first year. So a little bit of width and a little bit of height is gone in the first year. And then every five years, there's some statistical change okay, of loss. Now, did you know the only thing that keeps your teeth in place are the other teeth? And so when they lose their friend, whoo, they go looking for their friend. So when they don't have their friend to chew with, whoop, whoop, they come out of the socket looking for their friend. Okay. You know, you got this big maxillary sinus back here, this big water balloon full of goo. Did you know that the tooth roots actually keep that big water balloon at bay? And so when you lose the roots, the sinus goes, ooh, look at all that space, and it actually gets bigger, which means more volume of goo, which means more sinusitis and more sinus infections are possible. So you could do nothing, but if down the road you decide for me to replace this tooth and get it back, I've got to do orthodontic treatment to straighten the teeth out and open the space back up for a tooth. Okay. I've got to do a sinus lift and bone graft procedure to get the bone back, then do an implant abutment and crown. And we're probably looking at, you know, two years of treatment and $10,000 or more. Okay. But the good news is we're not there yet. If I get to it today, we're looking at a dental implant. So the next level down is I'm going to be starting with my ideal option, whatever that is. Okay. This is where I go first. And this could be the whole mouth of treatment. It could be a quadrant, could be a single tooth, doesn't matter. So the ideal option here is this thing called an implant abutment and crown. Now, I'm going to go through the pros and cons, but I'm going to describe them as good news and bad news. Now, the bad news about this implant option is it's the most expensive option of the ones I'm going to review and takes the most time. But the good news about this option is, guess what? Now I'm going to go back to those value statements that they told me about in my new patient questionnaire. Maybe they said they value longevity, meaning they want their teeth to be there their whole life. Well, great. I can work with that, especially when it comes to implants. So, hey, the good news about this implant is it's one of the few things, if you take care of it, that I can put in your mouth that should last the rest of your life. It's not a guarantee, but it should. All right, let's move on to the next option, this bridge. So now I'm going to reverse it. Now, the, bad news, or the good news about the bridge is it costs less than the implant and takes less time. But the bad news about the bridge is studies are showing that, and again, whatever negative you want to come up with would go here. I'm going to tie it back to that longevity thing, meaning they want a tooth that stays in their mouth for the long run. Well, studies show that bridges are having to be replaced on average now across the U.S. every seven years. Okay, So I'm just going to report that study. Hey, and did you know that studies are showing in seven years this bridge is going to have to be replaced? That's the bad news. That means in, you're going to have to pay for this thing three or four more times in your lifetime. Okay, And each time it gets more expensive and more is involved. Well, for somebody who wants to do it and be done with it, who wants longevity with their treatment choice, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a negative, okay? Now, the last option, of course, is this partial. Now, the partial, the good news about it is it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's the least expensive of the bunch and doesn't take a lot of time. But the bad news about it is you're going to hate it. <laughs> you're absolutely going to hate it. Uh, you know, it's 
You can't feel it. Your t- your taste buds are, are changed. It's plastic everywhere. Your tongue's going to hate it. Again, whatever negative you want to say about the partial. So now I've ethically presented all those options, but I still have too many choices on the table. So now I have to use this this or that format to funnel them back to one plan. I, I don't care what plan it is, as long as the patient chooses it. Okay. So Mrs. Jones, we've gone over your pros and cons of all your treatment. Let's figure out which one of these is right for you. Okay. Now let's start with this partial versus this bridge. So what studies show is when people can't decide is because they can't tell the difference between the things that were put in front of them. And if they can't tell the difference, that's why they can't decide. That's the uncertainty. So if they can't tell the difference between your treatment choices, again, think about that jury trying to decide about oil rights and drilling, okay? Then we have to help them with that as the experts. So what is the biggest differentiator between a partial and a bridge? And of course, we know it's one of these things comes in and out and one stays in place. So we try to simplify as much as we can. So let's go through your options and figure out which one of these is right for you. Now, this partial, as I said, comes in and out. Okay. It's plastic. You're going to have to wake up and look at your teeth in a jar. Or this bridge actually bonded into place doesn't come out. feels like your natural teeth. Which would you prefer? Do you want something that comes in and out or do you want something that stays in place? It's your choice. Decide. And I let them choose. Well, I think uh, I don't like, I don't want anything coming out. Okay, great. So it sounds like the partial's off the table. Let's go through the next two options. Now the bridge versus this implant. Well, as I said, you may have to pay for this bridge three or four more times in your lifetime if you don't take care of it. Versus the implant is one thing, uh, you know, I could put in your mouth that if you take care of it, should last the rest of your life. Which should you prefer? Do you want an option where you may have to keep messing with this thing? Or do you want an option where we could place it once and be done with it? Well, I don't want to have to keep messing with this thing. Okay, great. So it sounds like we're at the implant option. Let me get the financial team to come in and go over that with you. If anything else comes up, please let me know. So I've presented ethically every option I'm supposed to. I reviewed the pros and cons as I'm supposed to, but now I've used this this or that format to help them decide by identifying the differences between. And every choice they made now, now the patient has committed and wants that implant which means the financial talk about that, it's going to be a whole lot easier. And it's a whole lot easier for the financial team to present one option, meaning the implant abutment and crown, versus all three at the same time. That was awesome, Chris. Thank you. Okay, let's get into, we have, we have a question from Robbie. Robbie says, hygienist does profi, takes intraoral picks, and you do exam. Patient needs four fillings and two to three crowns. What do you say when you sit them up? No consult room, small town, Ohio. Yeah, actually, I love the fact that there's no consult room because uh, the center of influence is at the chair. Uh, the patient's mindset on oral health is at the chair. And the further you get away from the center of influence, the more distracted they get and the more likely you are to lose them. For example, when you sit them up in the chair and you take their bib off, what does that usually imply in the patient's mindset? When the bib comes off, what does that mean? It's time to go. Done. Right? Yeah. I'm done. I got to go to the grocery store, right? Uh, or get the kids or I got to book that next vacation. So this little amnesia effect happens when you take them in the console room. They've totally forgotten what was at the chair. And you're almost starting from scratch again. So step one, I always present everything at the chair. Okay? Finances doesn't matter. Okay? And so, again, I'm going to start this conversation by anchoring them to the do nothing. And doing nothing means that if we don't do these crowns today, they're going to end up needing root canal buildups and crowns. And the fillings that don't get done today are going to need crowns down the road. So option one is do nothing, but it's going to cost you 10 grand and a whole, and maybe pain, time off of work, a lot of treatment, who knows. But the good news today is we're only looking at a couple crowns and some fillings. Okay. And worst case, if they, we can't make that happen, then we could do two buildups and two fillings as a backup option. So again, as long as I've anchored them properly, I have no problem presenting that full treatment of they need the four fillings and the two crowns or three crowns or whatever that is, is option one. And then I could, if there were other options underneath there, I could just say, I could pick the worst, right? We could just do, instead of doing the whole treatment, like the whole mouth, let's pick half. What are the, what are the worst ones? Let's start there as option two, or let's just do the worst one as option three. So that structure is still the same though. Okay, anchoring them properly on what, uh, the, what it's going to cost them by doing nothing and then stepping them down from there in treatment choices. Who does the financial presentations for your office, offices? 
Yeah, great question. So while it's the doctor's job to get the patient committed to one plan, one treatment plan, okay, um, it's somebody else's job to present the money. You know, we're the last people I want presenting finances to patients because the the better you get at building that relationship with them uh, and the more empathy and sympathy you have, then what happens is the patient tends to ask us for discounts. <laughs> and we feel like we got to give it to them when they're asking it to us right there at the chair. So just by siphoning yourself out of that equation and putting somebody else in front of them to present, another team member, for instance, that's what I want, right? So I've got my financial coordinators to come in and, and close that. And I know it's tough as a startup to, to have dedicated positions, but I will tell you guys, as soon as you're financially able, dedicating someone to presenting the finances and keeping the doctor's schedule full, that's one of the best investments I ever made in my practices, okay? Uh, to the tune where I literally had a practice doing 150000 a month every month for like three straight years, like no growth at all. And as soon as I dedicated one of the team members from the front desk to doing that role uh, of just doing that full time and making sure that find out whatever barriers the patients have financially and help them try to figure out a way around it, figure out a way to fit it within their budget using care credit or whatever the third party financing company is or some layaway unique payment plan options, but figure out the barrier and get them scheduled. Okay, well, that took us from 150000 a month to doing over 200000 a month instantly and every month thereafter. So sometimes these small changes like that can have a big, I call these investment positions. Like that financial treatment coordinator is a huge investment position for your practice. So if you can dedicate somebody to that, I'd say the faster you can do that, the more success you're going to have. So, but it's a total new team member that comes in and presents that finances. For that person, are they incentivized based off of percentage of the production that they close or is there any bonus structure that you have in place to get them to close those bigger cases? Yeah, great question. You know, sometimes uh, people are motivated by different things. So I'm going to put some structure and some incentive out there as an offering and then kind of let them choose. Uh, Most of them will choose more money. Okay, so yeah, I would definitely make this more of a commission-based system. So kind of what I did with my team member was I kind of looked at our numbers for the last few years, you know, 150000 every month consistently. And I knew what I was paying her because she had a fixed salary. So just for numbers sake, let's call it 3000 a month is what I was paying her. So what I did was I, I first asked a commitment question, right? I was like, hey, Shelly, do you think we can do this year in numbers at the office what we did last year? And of course, we've done the same numbers for the same for the last three years. So what was she going to say? Yes, of course we can. Okay, great. Okay, well, here's what I want to do. Okay, I want to put you in this new position and I want to give you a new opportunity. I want to dedicate you to this treatment plan coordinator position or financial coordinator position, whatever you want to call it. And here's what I want. So if the office does the same monthly collections, we do 150 a month, like we always have, you get paid the same. You get paid your 3,000. But if we do 160, Tell you what, I'll give you 3500 that month. If we do 170, you'll get 4000. 180, 4500. If we do over 200,000, I'll pay you 6000. So in essence, I gave her a chance to double her income month on end, month on month, okay? But it was on her, okay, to, to help the patients figure out their barriers and get them scheduled and, and find a way around it, okay? And at the same time, now it goes the other way. Well, cuz if we do 140, we did less, then she's making less. She's getting 2,500, right? We do 130, she's doing three grand, uh, 2,000. Okay, so it's got to go both ways to be fair, right? Well, just by doing that simple little structure and having that as comparison, and she knew that it was a safe bet that we could do the same numbers, so she wasn't going to lose income, she was willing to try it. And lo and behold, a $50,000 swing in the first month. And she, the office was over 200 grand in collections uh, 10 of the next 12 months. Okay. And the two that we didn't hit it, we were pretty darn close. (laughs) Uh, And then every year that average kind of resets. So, you know, the average goes up. So it's a little harder to reach the the premium package goals. Okay. So the bar is always moving, but it's over a 12 month period, so to speak. I want to ask about the team that how much, how much of these discussions like are, is, is your team actually helping for that? Or is it mostly you coming in, presenting the treatment, and 
guiding the patient into the ideal ideal plan for them? Or do you have, from assistants to the hygienist, talking about all the things that they're seeing prior to you coming in and presenting the treatment? Yeah, uh, definitely. It, it's a team effort, right? And it goes back to that authority principle. You know, it's nice to have one expert telling you what, to, that, what you need done. But the more experts that are telling me I need it, now I got a, a panel of experts, right? I got a consensus of experts. So I want the team to be presented to the patient as an oral healthcare expert. And I want them giving advice. Again, they can't diagnose, but they can give, uh, they can talk about what they see. They can talk about what they think I'm going to be presenting. Because if I've done my job training my team on my criteria, you know, when the tooth looks like this, it's a filling. If the tooth looks like this, it's a crown. If the bone is like this, it's scaling. You know what I mean? So if they know my criteria of, of, case, pre- of case planning and how I'm going to treat and plan the patient, then they can set me up for success. And once they hear it from them and the patient really understands that these, this is not only just a friend, somebody I like giving me advice, but this is a friend who knows what they're talking about, right? This is an oral healthcare expert. My hygienist that's been doing this for 15 years and does X amount of hours of CE every year and whatnot. Okay, well, she said I needed it and the doctor said I needed it. All right, I guess I need it. So, yeah, they're definitely setting me up before I come in. Okay. And kind of, uh, we call this persuasion. So they're kind of priming the pump. And I also have some flyers for the more standardized things like I've got a crown flyer, I've got an implant flyer, an edentulous arch, a scaling replaying flyer like things that we, we know what the treatment's going to be. So we put the information in the patient's hands before I ever walk into the room. Okay. So, and it's got my whole influence case presentation in written in picture form. So the patient's heard it from the team. They're reading it on paper, right? And here I come in as the third authority now telling them what they need and walking them through and helping them guide them to their decision on what do they actually want when it comes to their treatment. And then the financial team can come in and take the ball from there. So it's definitely a team effort. The more of those three things we can get involved, the easier this is going to go for everybody. Can you share, do you mind sharing? We have a question. Mansi's asking, can you share the same, or can you share the same for incentive for a hygienist? I guess, do you have a, uh, a, a bonus system in place for the other team members, not just your financial coordinator? Yeah, you know, the thing about bonuses is this, is that uh, the longer you have them, the worse they get. (laughs) Uh, They start out as gifts and they turn into entitlements, unfortunately. And so once motivation disappears on them, there's there's no value to them. Nobody wins in that scenario. And then when you try to take them away, then everybody gets mad at you because of the scarcity of what they just missed out on or losing out on even though nobody was really doing anything about it. So if you do bonuses, I recommend, you know, like make them like contests, like three month intervals and set them around metrics or key, key uh, point indicators in your practice that you want to see move things that could have the biggest impact on your practice in the next quarter. Okay. So the one that I always love doing, which really was all has always been my focus for my practices is I do a new patient incentive or bonus. Okay. So, because the hygiene, every, all the clinical team and the front desk team, both sides of the, of the equation can influence the new patient number. And so what I don't want to do is give one person or one group this bonus, but other people are missing out on an opportunity. Everybody's got to have an opportunity. So I can, with new patients, that's easy. Everybody can be involved. So I created, I have an influence-based referral system. So the goal for my clinical team is if they're going to get a referral is to try to get the name of a potential new patient, for instance. That's really the goal. And for every name they get, I pay them $5, okay? And then we track that. And for every name that shows up at the office, I would pay them another $5 at the end of that, okay? So now my clinical team has a chance to earn, in essence, $10 more every hour than what they're paying, okay? I offered the same thing to my front desk team when it came to scheduling new patients and making sure those patients showed up in the practice, okay? So I gave them a chance to earn five to $20 more per hour. Again, depending on how hard they wanted to work to hear listen to their phone calls and, and take my advice on things they could say differently, so to speak. So now I got both sides, the front and the back, equally working and have an opportunity to make 
10 to $20 more an hour. Okay. Every hour. I mean, you can't beat that. Right. <laughs> and it's totally up to them. So that was probably my most successful bonus. I ran that for over three years uh, before I finally ran out of steam or really ran out of steam because, you know, the average keeps changing on you. So it's harder and harder to hit the mark. And truthfully, we ran out of chairs anyway. We had maxed our capacity. So there really wasn't a need for that bonus anymore. Uh, but of course, you can create any kind of incentive like that for the hygienist. But again, I would tie it around something you think is going to have the biggest impact for you as the practice owner, for that hygienist, whatever that is. And make sure whatever the, the, the reward is, make sure they get to choose it. Not that everybody doesn't love money, but maybe they prefer paid time off or Maybe they prefer you taking an expense off their plate, like daycare or something else. Uh, I'm all about taking expenses off my team's plate as my gift to them in exchange for what they can do for me. Awesome. I'm going to read some questions that we've had prior to the actual class starting. Um, yep. This one is from Olga. Hello, my name is Olga, and I'm looking for tips or tricks to help my patients commit to treatment maybe easy ways to explain their diagnosis and how to have patients own it and be inspired to correct it. Awesome. Great question, Olga. Uh, first and foremost, it goes back to, we got to get them in the right mindset. And so we need to ask certain questions, right? Questions help create mindsets. Um, so asking that reactive versus proactive question is, is really key. Okay. Um, Cause you need to know, because if somebody says, let's just say, they say they're reactive, right? They circle that on their, their form. Or they, if you interview them and just ask them at the chair, they say, no, I prefer to be reactive. Yeah, if it ain't broke, I ain't fixing it. Well, automatically, they've just told you and made a huge commitment. They don't care, <laughs> right? So, I mean, ethically and legally, we're required to tell them they have a problem. We're required to show it to them, meaning we can show them the x-rays and whatever. So we have to show them they have issues. We're required to tell them we have a plan to fix it, and today's the most inexpensive time to fix it. But there is no ethical or legal obligation that says we have to shove our treatment plan down their throat when they don't want to hear it. And in fact, you're just wasting both of your times in the process. And you're probably going to piss the person off and they're not going to come back. Okay. Instead, I'd be like, hey, totally understand. But just so you know, you know we do have issues, <laughs> and I got a plan today, and it's the most inexpensive time. But it sounds like you don't want to hear it. So I kind of stepped back a little bit. Like, sounds like you don't want to hear it. If you ever change your mind, you let me know. And I kind of pause. And one or two things are going to happen when you do that. When you make yourself in this plan, this treatment plan to fix the problem today, that's still a mystery because they haven't heard it. You put it out in front of them and then take it away. Many times it'll open the door back up and they'll change their mindset. They'll go, no, nah, you're right. I, you're right. I do want to hear it. Today is probably the best time to hear it. All right, let's go through it. Okay, great. But now they've opened the door back up. They've chosen to be responsive again. Okay. That's somebody you can work with. But ultimately, if they're still fighting you, that's okay. And I'll say, hey, totally understand. Tell you what, I don't know when the time bomb is going to go off. So I like to make analogies like this, like uh, and scare, use scarcity terms that people can understand. So I don't know when the time bomb's going off. We know the clock's ticking. I just can't see the clock. But when it does blow, just know you're not going to get any judgment from me. You call me today, I'll get you in that day. Okay, so whenever that day comes, you call me that day, I will get you in. Okay, now notice I didn't promise I'd treat them that day. I didn't even promise I'd start the treatment day. I promised I would get them in because I know at the time that's going to be their sole focus. That's all you have to satisfy. If I can fix it, I will. If I can start it, I will, but I'm not promising it. But I've done a very, given them a very powerful gift. I've told them I'm not going to judge you and I'm honoring your wishes today. And I'll take care of you when this happens. So those are the best people. When they come back in for round two, down the road, I come in. It's like, well, we knew this day was coming. Yep. Well, here's where we're at today. I do the whole presentation. Here's what it's going to cost. You ready? Okay, let's get to it. <laughs> Let me get the financial team to get you to sign off on it. And it's that easy. Okay. But ultimately, for those proactive folks, we got to ask that question. Because if you don't know what they stand for, you know, most of the time, you guys are just guessing on what they value. You know what happens when you assume, right? Most of the time you're wrong, okay? So we got to, instead of guessing what we think that person values, we got to get them to tell it to us. So that's the question is, what do you value most when it comes to you know, not being a pain? Do you value comfort, cosmetics, your time off of work? Is it your budget? 
you know, there's a whole list of questions I ask, and I'm happy to share that questionnaire with you guys uh, to, to, to get them to tell me. Okay. So once we know who they are, now you have a chance to change the outcome. Love it. I love it. And Jessica said, I'm a GP practicing in South Florida, Pembroke Pines. My right. startup is two years old. Do you know where that is? Yeah, I went to dental school at Nova right there in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, nice. Um, my startup is two years old, and I'm finding lately that our case acceptance could use some help, especially for the bigger aesthetic cases. Mm. I'm wanting tips to improve our systems in presenting treatment plans so patients feel more compelled slash convinced to move forward with treatment. Yes. Um, great question. You know, it's kind of interesting. So as I mentioned, these two big mindsets have been proactive and reactive, right? And whatever it is, we got to get our people to decide, where do you stand? So you got to start by figuring that out. Once you guys start with that, I'm telling you, everything else is going to change. You're automatically going to get more yeses if you get somebody to say they're proactive, okay, without doing anything else. And I've got offices that can testify to that. Um, but really what she's noticing is what I, I kind of been predicting. I predicted it when COVID happened and I talk about it in my, in my book that's coming out, but it's what happens in a time of apprehension. Like we have, uh, have been going through these last couple of years when there's this global uncertainty hanging over us as a, as a group. Okay. And kind of once we were shut down, you know, pre COVID, let's say 80% of your ideal patients were proactive mindset people, people who came in and did the crowns and the fillings. And only about 20% of the chair time was filled with the reactive folks, the ones that just let it go. So now it's a pain situation and it's a much bigger thing. It's a root canal, it's an implant, it's a, it's a what have you. Well, something crazy happened during the COVID shutdown, okay? The reason the reactive folks are like they are is because of one of the reasons why people say no to us. It's a lack of motivation. They thought they had time. They thought that whenever this thing does blow, I, they could go to any dentist anywhere and somebody's going to take care of it. But guess what the COVID shutdown showed them? When all of us were shut down, right? Holy crap, my tooth's killing me and I can't go anywhere. Uh-oh. <laughs> so what it did was it motivated the reactive mindset person and took them to a whole other level. So now I call these folks, we're going to differentiate them as risk averse and risk tolerant. Okay. Our risk averse is our proactive folks and our risk tolerant are the reactive folks. So as soon as the doors opened back up, it was the reactive folks were the first ones in our office. Nobody had a mask on. Nobody cared. They were just looking to be seen, okay? They didn't care what any of the protective measures we had taken. They could have cared less, okay? But who wasn't showing up was the 80% of the people we saw before COVID. It was our proactive mindset, the risk-averse crowd, because they were afraid they were going to get sick. And again, that uncertainty was keeping them from moving. They were stuck at home. And so even though it's been over two years now, Okay, since the shutdown has happened, most people were just now getting through all those reactive folks. And so the and we haven't taken the time to get the proactive ones back and motivate them to come back into the office like they should. But now we're starting to see the pendulum shift back. So these reactive folks are starting to realize that's why they came back. They started doing implants. They got their stimulus money. So they're all about doing their orthodontics and cosmetics and everything else. Well, all that's dried up. And so the pendulum's shifting back. That's why a lot of offices are seeing more cancellations, more no-shows than ever before, than in the last two years, okay, as a result, because we're, we're, we're swift shifting back where we're starting to lose the reactive mindset, folks, again, and hopefully that means now the proactive ones are going to be coming back, so. Awesome. Um, okay, I'm Mansty. I'm a general dentist practicing in a small town. Uh, thanks for creating this group. Thank you for being a part of this group. My question, my patients seem to get stuck at the money part. I understand that this is probably everyone's hurdle, but I feel that some of my patients genuinely seem to understand their problem, but don't move forward with treatment. What are some things I can do? We show pictures, understand what they value, and use verbiage so they understand, offer third-party financing, et cetera. Thanks for the suggestions. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely welcome. Uh, well, first and foremost, as we said, we got to get them in the right mindset. Uh, we got to make sure we present it in a way that they actually choose the treatment. Uh, they're not being told they need the treatment. It's one thing to go to a person and say, you need a crown, right? That's, that's telling them. And we all learned as kids growing up that we didn't like to be told things, correct? You know, 
especially if you got little kids right now, anytime you try to tell them something, they're, they're going the other way. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that has never left us. So when somebody tries to tell us what we need or what we need to do, uh, we tend to resist it for that fact. So that's why giving them that, that choice, do nothing or this, automatically puts them back in control. Okay, they feel like they have a choice in the matter. And you're not telling, you're offering examples, you're offering choices. So get better at doing this or that. But ultimately, even though we can influence them to want the treatment, for some people, especially, you know, like me, I'll do, you know, full arch uh, implants and hybrids, upper and lower. I mean, that's 80,000 bucks. I mean, that's not cheap. So it is about the money for some people. Well, the best thing you can do is just to have as many backup plans, as many ways that you can think of to try to help them fit this thing into their budget. Because that's really what it's about at that point is trying to figure out what number can you get this treatment down to for this person per month to get them to a yes. So for a crown, for example, I'll say, well, you know, my financial team is going to come in and present and they'll say, well, Dr. Phelps said, if you do nothing with this tooth, it's going to get worse. It's going to get infected, cause pain. You're going to need a root canal build up in a crown and that's going to cost you 3,600 bucks. But the good news is he said, it's only a crown. If you do that, it's only uh, $1,200. And after your insurance pays its part, it's only $800. Does that work for you? If they say no, meaning they really can't afford 800 bucks out of pocket today. Okay, well, here's what we can do. Why don't we take half today? We'll start it, put a temporary crown on it, and I'll put it on. Dr. Phelps will do the next visit next month and deliver the crown for the next half. Does that work for you? So now we're trying to break it up, 400, 400. Does that number work? If they say no to that, just be ready for the next financial concession. Well, okay, well, how about we do this? I'll take a third today as a down payment. We'll schedule it for next month. I'll take another third when we'll start it, and then I'll, we'll finish it the third month for the last payment. Does that work? Or maybe you can do, you know, if it's going to be an implant, it's going to be four months anyway. Get them to prepay for a couple of months before you do anything, and then give them a month or two and trust they'll pay it over those couple of months, right? So you can get creative. I mean, I don't like to be the bank for treatment over three grand, but for under three grand, I don't mind being the bank especially if I can phase it to it works out that I get my overhead and lab fees covered before I really do anything, uh, then I think that's a win-win. So we guys, we shouldn't be afraid of hearing no from our patients. We just need to be ready to offer something else. What's next? When I hear no, what am I going to ask for next? What am I going to offer next? Can't do 800? How about half, half? No? How about a third, a third, a third? No? Well, all right, well, I can get it down as low as, and that's when I'll go to my financing as my backup option. Well, and I just kind of run the math and I'll have the team look at what's care credit at five years. What's that number? Okay. Okay. So I can get it down as low as 75 bucks a month. Does that work for you? So before I even tell them about financing and interest and all these other things, if I can't get them to say yes to the number, <laughs> then there's, you're wasting your time talking about financing. So that's really what we have to ask. What number can we get this to that works out in both of our favorites? It's a win-win for both that makes sense. And usually you're going to find a path. And if it's not for the ideal treatment, right? Let's say I just can't make the money work on the crown. Well, my team knows. Then they go to the next available treatment option, which is a buildup. I mean, hell, it's, at least we get the decay out. We got rid of the infection. It's not perfect, but it's better than doing nothing. And they can repeat that sequence. And again, try to get that into a number that works in the patient's budget. So I guess the answer is you've, you've got to be creative uh, in the financial options that you're willing to offer those patients. And your financial team has to be well-versed in what you feel comfortable and how many options you're, you're willing to give and how much you're willing to, to be the bank or completely rely on financing. No, I love that. Options for sure. And I... We're doing a lot more cosmetic cases in my office. And um, I know I'm guilty of just wanting to um, discount just so I can get the case going and get, yeah, get, get more cases to add to my portfolio. Where is, I think a lot of us feel, not a lot of us, may, maybe, but we consider the word sell as like a dirty word. And it's, it's essential. You're, you're always selling something. Um, where, when you're giving options like this, I can hear like some doctors thinking, well, that just sounds like a used car salesman. Like, 
you don't go to the cardiologist and then they're giving you options. Like what, what are your thoughts to, to those, those people who think that way? Cause it is a, a very different mindset. It is. Yeah. And I would say, you know, again, it, it all comes out in, in, in your intent. Okay. If your intent is to uh, weasel this person out of money, okay, then you're going to come across as a used car salesman. <laughs> if your intent is to help this person and, and to help them overcome a big mistake, meaning doing nothing, and because, you know, if truthfully, if patients really knew what we knew was going to happen to them, if they really understood it to the level we do, the consequences of what doing nothing is going to entail for them down the road, then I can tell you right now, most rational, rational people would prefer not to let that happen and make it a priority today. Okay. So again, I believe that to my core. Therefore, how I present comes across as genuine. So as long as you're presenting it genuine, you will not be perceived as a used car salesman. And who doesn't like options in a world where people are always being told? Even if you go to the cardiologist, you still get options, <laughs> right? You can do a balloon stent. You can do a bypass. They're not telling you to do anything. Not really. So people want options. They want to be educated and they want to have enough, the information presented to them in a way, at least that they can kind of understand what it is and make an educated decision. They're going to, because they have to use something to decide. Okay. I mean, think about it. The person is in your chair for a reason. Okay. They, they know they're going to get their work done somewhere. They're just trying to decide, do I like and trust you enough to be the one to do it? Okay. And if we communicate with them in this way, if we make them a part of the journey, if you will, of this presentation. So it's not me telling them and dictating what they need. I'm actually on this. I actually sit next to them when I can, like side by side at the chair. Okay. And I'll put like a piece of paper in their lap with a clipboard and I'm writing options out and drawing it out in front of them. Okay. So we're on the same side of things now, not even opposing each other, facing off. So when we're on the same team like that, that's how it comes across. And people actually really pick up on that. And we get a ton of Google reviews to that effect. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. Can you believe it's already been over an hour, Chris? Holy cow, has it? That flew by. Yes, I want to, um, I'm going to read one more. And it's from Maritza. Thanks for being here, Maritza. She says, I always believe you can't buy or sell a product or service we don't trust or understand. Would you say dentists need to focus more on self-assessment and creating a plan to improve their skills and hold the responsibility on them rather than putting the weight on their front desk? Definitely. As I said, it is our responsibility to educate the patient about their options and influence them to choose and want one plan, whatever that plan is, comprehensive care, single arch, single tooth, whatever that one thing is, it's one plan, okay? That can't be on the front desk. That cannot be on your financial team. It, it's a recipe for no is what that is, okay? So it is our responsibility to get educated and communicate in the proper way. And as I'm hoping you guys are picking up on tonight is that not only what we say and, how, and the way we communicate things to people is important, but believe it or not, the order in which we say things is even more important. Most people don't even understand the fact about what we're talking about, but presenting things in different orders, this way versus that way, can set the stage for a yes or no by itself, just because of the order. I mean, it's crazy. So we have to know these things and present it in the proper way, okay? If we can do that, and going back to what they said, I loved what they said there, people don't uh, buy from things that we don't trust or understand. And, and, and they do with services when they don't truly understand it to the our level, so to speak but they won't do it for somebody who's trying to present it to them, meaning they got to trust the person. Mm. Right. Mm. And, and that's what I mean. So if they don't like us, if they, we don't take the time to build that relationship with them and what, and I'm talking about simple things, like just finding one simple thing in common with them, one connection before you ever start ripping their lips open and looking in their mouth. Okay. Can make or break your case acceptance, but few take the time to do it because why we're in a rush. We're too busy. Right. Well, not getting the person to like you or not showing the person that you like them is costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. <laughs> that much I can tell yeah. you. And not only not getting treatment today, but in turnover because they're not coming back. So now you got to spend more to replace them, right? So we got to sh- get the liking down and we got to build the trust. Those two things. Whatever you present is a moot point after that fact. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And I am going to wrap this up, but I wanted to let everyone know that, um, one, this is going to be um, pinned. So we're going to keep this, um, this video because it was full of awesome information. Thank you so much. And I'm super excited because you guys know we're, we're hosting a retreat in Napa in November, and we have Chris as one of our headliners. So it's an opportunity to spend a couple days of not just listening to Chris, but being up close and personal, pick his brain, see what he did right, see where he's made mistakes in, in his multiple startups. You'll have the whole opportunity to do that in wine country over glasses, bottles of the best wine. So um, if you want to see Chris, um, if you want to see more of Chris, definitely hang out with us in Napa. And we have a we have a special code for you guys. It's 500 off of the, the VIP, uh, the early bird special. And it's in all caps, enter Phelps, um, all caps. And um, yeah, we hope that you join us. Um, and also Chris has an announcement too. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I get, <laughs> maybe I do. Uh, yeah, tonight, of course, is just a, a, a small peek into a much larger world uh, of this influence and persuasion stuff. And there, you know, I've spent years using my practices as my laboratory, right? Trying to turn this behavioral science stuff and figure out how to apply it to case acceptance, to re reviews, referrals getting my team to do stuff without me having to keep telling them to do stuff. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So to do it properly, I need two full days with you and as many of your team members as you think will see value in this, which I think is all of them. Uh, so I've got a course coming up online. Uh, we're doing July 8th and 9th. It'll be recorded. You'll have access to it after the fact. Uh, and for any of you guys in the startup group, if you use the code startup and the link I'll provide uh, somewhere uh, on the comments when I get a chance to go back and read them, uh, you'll get 10% off that that event. Uh, but it, it's fundamental to understand and start getting your mindset in the in the proper way about how this stuff needs to be presented, the order in which it needs to be presented, to understand the context on why it has to be this way. And the benefit is, like I said, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, right? It's not like monumental things you got to change, but it's these small little things you can change that can make a huge difference. And the earlier you figure that out in your practice, the more successful you're going to be and the longer you'll reap the benefits. Absolutely. Um, we're going to link all of that information for you in, um, in, the, in the, the box. The bo Colin, can you figure that out for us, please? <laughs> um, but thank you so much for your time, Chris. I hope you guys have enjoyed this, um, this hour together. Um, I certainly did. I was asking all of the questions that I have selfishly for, for my office. So, um, yeah, we're, we're excited to have Chris as, uh, our speaker of honor in Napa. And, um, I'm just excited to get more of this content out to you guys, because so many of us have the same questions. We're, why reinvent the wheel? Let's just have these sessions where we can invite guests to, to talk to us about what they've learned throughout their careers. So uh, I'm excited for what's to come. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. And thank you most of all to Dr. Christopher Phelps. You're amazing. And uh, we so appreciate you being a part of our community. Awesome. My pleasure, Ashley. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you. Have an amazing weekend, guys. Take care. <laughs>